Today's reading is from Joshua 22, 9 through 16, and 21 through 30. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to Galiloth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan and Galiloth near, near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel know, if this has been a rebellion, in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, the Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord, so your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at this sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices, other than the altar of the Lord, our God, that stands before this tabernacle. When Phinehas, the priest, and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. This is God's word. pray with me. We thank you for your word, Father. We pray that from it you would speak to our lives and our hearts and that your word would be powerful among us. In Christ's name, amen. There's a skit by the comedians Jordan Peele and Keegan-Michael Key. Um, it's kind of a split screen where it shows each one in his own home and they are texting each other back and forth. And I don't really recommend watching the video. It's got a lot of profanity, which kind of ruins it. But 
a censored version. It goes like this. Um, Keegan <clears throat> is in his kitchen. He's looking a little bit annoyed. He picks up his phone and he types into it. I've been trying to reach out to you all day. Are we on for tonight? Jordan, sitting on his couch in his living room, sees the message, and he says, oh, shoot, Keegan's been texting me. So he types back in, sorry, dude, missed your texts. I, I, I assumed we'd meet at the bar. Whatever, I don't care. Keegan gets the message and reads it this way. Sorry, dude, missed your texts. I assumed we'd meet at the bar. Whatever, I don't care. Whatever, I don't care. What's this guy's problem, right? So, so he types back in, do you even want to hang out? Jordan reads, do I even want to? Oh, he is so considerate, right? So, so he writes back, like I said, whatever. Keegan reads it, like I said, whatever. Oh, this guy is a jerk, right? So, so Keegan types in, you're priceless, Jordan reads it, and he goes, oh, he's so sweet. He thinks I'm priceless. So he, he writes back, no, you're the one who's priceless. Keegan reads it this way. No, you're the one who's priceless. He says, this guy wants to fight. He wants to fight. All right, you want to fight? He goes, he types in, you want to go right now? Meaning you want to fight right now? Jordan gets the text, and he goes, do I want to go right now? Oh. I guess I can. So he types back in, okay, let's go. First round's mine. And, and uh, when Keegan gets that, he's, he throws his phone down. There's not going to be any rounds in this fight, mister. This is going to be a, a street fight. And so the skit ends with Jordan Peele sitting in a bar, big smile on his face, happily waiting the chance to buy the first round of beers for his good buddy Keegan, who's walking through the door with a baseball bat and ready to fight him. So it's a, it's a silly skit, right? But... It illustrates a problem that we all have. I have this. You have this. Someone will say something we don't really understand or do something we don't really understand. And we just jump to conclusions. We assume things about them. We assume things about their motives. We assume things about their intentions. This leads to further misunderstanding, further breakdown of communication. And it can, it can end with fighting, with needless division, with, with painful conflict. You know it happens. It happens in marriages. It can happen in friendships. It can happen in church congregations. And it happens in the passage that we're looking at today. Uh, we've been studying the book of Joshua. We are approaching the end in, uh, in we're today in Joshua chapter 22. And what I'd like to do is I just want to kind of walk us through this, this text, explain what's going on in this story, and then I'm going to pause in the middle of my explanation and give us just two words by way of application, two ways that we might apply this text to our life. So we'll look at the, the chapter, what's going on here. First, you need to know the backstory. When, um, when the people of Israel approached the land of Canaan, after wandering for 40 years in, in the wilderness. They approached Canaan from the east, approaching the Jordan River, which they would cross and then be in Canaan. And as they approached Canaan, these two kings from the east, Og and Sihon, attacked them for no reason at all, just attacked the Israelites. The Israelites fought back, and they defeated these kings and won this land. Uh, just to the east of Canaan, neighboring the land of Canaan, they, they, they won this land they had not expected. 
And there were three tribes in Israel, the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, who looked at this windfall, this land, neighboring land, just to the east of Canaan, and they said to themselves, you know, this is actually pretty nice land. I know it's not milk and honey, but it's still pretty good. It's, it's great land, especially if you raise crops or you have herds, and that's what they did. So they went to Moses, these three tribes, and they said to Moses, listen, we kind of like this land here, right to the east of Canaan. We would be willing to let you divide up our share of Canaan with the other Israelite tribes if you just let us have this land here to the east. And Moses thought about it, and he said, yeah, I guess we can make that work. But he said, but don't think you're getting out of the conflict. There's a lot of battles that need to be fought for us to win the land of Canaan. Don't think you're getting out of that war. You, your soldiers have to cross the Jordan with us. Help us take over the land of Canaan. And then when you've done your duty as soldiers, you can return back to the east, and you can have that land. So that's what they did. And in today's passage, we're at the point where basically now all the battles are finished, and the land of Canaan has been won, the land has been distributed to, to the tribes, and these, these three tribes, the eastern tribes, they are returning back home to this land on the east side of the Jordan. And as they're returning, they say to themselves, I don't think we can trust those western tribes. I don't think we can trust those guys. I mean, we just, we just helped them win the land of Canaan, but I tell you what they're going to do. I know they will do this within two generations, one generation. They, they will start to tell our children and our grandchildren that we're not really part of Israel because we live east of the Jordan. They're going to tell us, tell, tell our kids that they're really not part of the covenant people of God. They're not going to allow us to cross the Jordan and go worship the Lord at his tabernacle, at his altar in Canaan. I know that's going to happen. We can't trust those guys. So they said, you know what we should do? Let's build a big monument right here next to the Jordan that will stand for centuries to show future generations that we, too, are also part of Israel. And we have a right to cross the Jordan and worship Yahweh at his altar, at his tabernacle. In fact, you know what? Let's make the monument in the shape of a huge altar. So that's what they did. Meanwhile, back in Canaan, the western tribes heard a report that the eastern tribes had built an altar. And they said to each other, I knew we couldn't trust those eastern tribes. You see, you, you see we, they come over here, fight the Lord's battle, act like they love the Lord. They don't love the Lord. One day out of Canaan, they're already building altars to worship foreign gods. I knew they were idolaters. I knew we couldn't trust them. You know what we should do? We should go kill those guys. All right? So they're on the verge of this needless, ridiculous, bloody civil war. They're, they're, they are about to enter into this, this completely unnecessary conflict with each other. Now, pause. Some application. And this is really important because for those of us, if you've, probably everyone here, if you've ever been through a really hard conflict, it's so painful. Some, sometimes conflicts are necessary, all right? Sometimes, sometimes they are unavoidable. But they're always painful. If, if maybe your parents divorced or you've been through a divorce or maybe, maybe you've been through a church split or a, or a friendship that failed, it just hurts. How much more so when it didn't need to happen? So, so the, I think the question that this text is, is, is beckoning us to ask is, how can we avoid unnecessary conflict 
unnecessary misunderstanding. So two, two words of application. How do we avoid unnecessary conflict? First, first, assume the best. Assume the best about others. I mean, the, the big problem in this passage is that everyone, everyone's assuming the worst about the others. The eastern tribes are just assuming that the western tribes will kick them out of Israel. You know, I've read the book of Joshua many times. There's no, there's no evidence at all that, that would lead you to believe that they would do that, but they're just assuming those western tribes, they'll do this to us. And, and, and the western tribes, they're just assuming that the eastern tribes are a bunch of idolaters. They're turning their back. They're just, they're assuming the worst about each other. And listen, that's so easy to do. Have you ever done that? You know, somebody doesn't get out of the way for you to get into the subway. And you're like, no, you did that on purpose, didn't you? You did that on purpose just to ruin my day. You just assume things. It's so easy. Um, we all struggle with that. There's a, there's a letter that was written by C.S. Lewis to one of his friends where he's asking for prayer. And I, I love it because he's just so humble and honest about his own struggle as a Christian with those tendencies. And here's what he writes. He says, I am suffering incessant temptations to harbor uncharitable thoughts about others. I'm, I'm in one of those dark moods in which nearly all of my friends seem to be selfish or even false. You ever been there? He says, how terrible that there should even be a kind of pleasure in thinking evil of others. Pray for me. So it's so easy to do what these western tribes and eastern tribes did. Just assume the, the worst about others. But listen, we serve, we serve the king of love, Jesus, right? He calls us to follow the path of love. The path of love bids us to assume the best about others. So you've heard 1 Corinthians 13. Some people call that the love chapter. And I think it's a good title because in 1 Corinthians 13, you find um, what I think is probably the, the deepest, most eloquent definition of human love you'll find anywhere in all of human literature, all right? And so um, in 1 Corinthians 13, love is described this way. Love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres. Now, I've often wondered, what does it mean when Paul, he writes, love always trusts? So some translations render that love believes all things. It used to confuse me. What does it mean I believe? Somebody says, hey, hey, Ellis, I'd like to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge. Well, that doesn't sound very likely, but I want to be a loving person, so, you know, here's my money. I just believe everything. Is that what it means? You're gullible. You let people walk all over you? No. I think when it says love always, it believes all things, it always trusts, always hopes. It means that, here's what it means. Whenever um, someone says something that you don't really understand or their actions don't really make sense to you, the loving response is instead of immediately imputing selfish motives to them, the loving response is to find a way as best you can to put the 
you know, the best possible spin on their words, on their actions. Just the, just to, uh, you know, to the best possible explanation. She was late, not because she was trying to be mean to me, but, you know, maybe there was traffic, right? The, to, look, to view them in the best possible light. So, for example, you're at work, and you're walking down the hall, and here comes a coworker you don't really know. You say hello, and this person just walks right by and says nothing. How, how, do you, how, do you how do you interpret their actions in your mind? She is such a snob. I don't even know her, but she's a snob. Right? Or he must be a racist. That's why he did that. You know, do you assume those things? You could, you could reach those assumptions, but the, the, the call of love would be for you to say, you know, I, I wonder if she's really shy. If that's the case, she might be really lonely. I wonder if I could befriend her. Or, I, you know, why didn't he say hello? He must be having such a rough day. Maybe I can pray for that man. Right? So, now, four years later, if she's still not saying hello, okay, she's a snob then. But, you know, at, at first, you, you, first you, 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 look for, you look for ways to interpret things lovingly. And here, listen, guys, what should encourage us as Christians to do that is, hey, isn't that exactly what God has done for us in Christ? In love, God has made a decision, believer, to look upon you in the best possible light, not just in, in, in the best possible light, to look upon you in, in the brilliance of the light of the righteousness of Christ. Now, this is mysterious, but the Bible says that whenever anyone placed their trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit unites them with Christ. In God's eyes, they are now in Christ. And what that means is, believer, when God looks at you, sees Jesus. Now, God is no dummy, all right? He knows how messed up you are. He knows how messed up I am. He, know, he, he knows our selfishness. But he makes a loving choice because of what Christ has done, because we're united with Jesus, to look upon you with all of your failures and all of your selfishness, all of your cowardice, and just look at you and say, I see the righteousness of Christ in you. He, he does this, right? He assumes not just the best. He looks upon us in the light of the glory of Christ. This, this is why, and it's so weird, in the Bible, you will read of people and the Bible itself tells us that these are really messed up people, but you'll read, of, you'll read of them being described by God's word in the most glowing terms. For example, Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew. Lot was a man who was just horribly conformed to the culture around him, just went along with the flow of his society, and because of that, he really ended his life in great shame. But Lot had placed his faith in Yahweh. And 2 Peter describes Lot as a righteous man. A righteous man? Or, or, or Samson, Samson. This is the guy with the long hair, right? Samson. Um, a man with incredible potential, right? Incredibly gifted man. Wasted all of it because he couldn't control his sexual appetite. Hebrews chapter 11 described this man, Samson, who had placed his faith in Yahweh as one of the heroes of the faith. Or if you ever read the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is written to a church in ancient Corinth, and Paul talks to them about all the problems they were having in their congregation, and you realize these were some really, this was a messed up church. These people were proud, they were arrogant, they were divisive, they were judgmental, there was sexual immorality, there was idolatry, I mean, a messed up church. Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 1, you know what he calls them? Saints. 
I like Paul. How do you call these people saints? I, you know all their problems. I think Paul would say, you know why I'm calling them saints? I am describing them the way God sees them in Jesus. And isn't that just so amazing? Isn't it great to have a God who has chosen to love you that way? To look upon you and just assume the best. To look upon you in the best possible light. To look upon you and see Jesus. So, if you've received that kind of love from God, it just makes you, doesn't it just kind of encourage your heart to want to learn to do that with others? Um, to assume, not be like these Western and Eastern tribes, right? Just assume the best. So that's the first application. How do we avoid unnecessary conflict? Um, ask the Holy Spirit to teach you to start to assume the best. Second word of application. Um, to avoid unnecessary conflict, seek to understand. Go out of your way to try to understand what did you mean by that? Explain to me where you're coming from. I don't, I don't see it this way. Can we talk about this? So would you agree that so many um, misunderstandings and conflicts in life could have been avoided if people would have just asked? What do you mean? Right? So, for example, I, read, I was reading about something that happened. I guess it was a Christian college or, or, or a seminary. It was a church history class. And the professor was teaching about the, con the conversion to the Christian faith of the Roman Emperor Constantine in the year 312 AD, all right? And so the professor stands before the class, and he, and he says, in, in the year AD 312, um, the Emperor Constantine converted to the Christian faith. He declared Christianity to be the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire, but many of us historians have reason to question the authenticity of his conversion. Many of us think that he didn't truly become a Christian. He just went through the motions of becoming a Christian for political reasons. And when he said that, one of the students raised his hands and he said, uh, teacher, I disagree. I think you're wrong. I think his conversion was genuine. And, and the professor said, you're wrong. It was not a, a genuine conversion, and, and, and there's many reasons to think that he, he wasn't truly a Christian. And, and, and the student said, no, prof, you're wrong. It, it was a genuine conversion. In fact, I view him as one of the greatest Christian leaders who ever lived. Well, anyway, they went back and forth, and they had this huge argument over this, and, and the professor actually had to dismiss class early. It just got so heated. The next day, all the students come back to class. They're sitting on the edge of their chairs wondering what's going to happen. They never knew church history could be so exciting, right? And, and, they're, and, and they're waiting to see what will happen. The professor stands up, <clears throat> clears his throat, straightens his lapel, and he says... Once more, I must contend that there are solid historical reasons to question the authenticity of the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine. Everyone turned towards the argumentative student to see what he would say. And the student said, did you say Constantine? And the teacher said, yes, Constantine. And the student said, Oh, I thought we were talking about Augustine. Now, you don't have to know who Constantine and Augustine were to understand that whole conflict. Would, it never would have started if either one of those individuals would have just said, can you explain what you mean? I don't understand. Can you explain what you're talking about? I mean, it just would have, it would have, and how often in life would that happen with us if, if, if we would just, that's why, is it James 1 verse 19 says, everyone should be what? Quick to listen, slow to speak, 
slow to become angry. So a way to avoid this needless misunderstanding is just seek to understand the other person, which is in this passage, that is done by this priest named Phineas. Phineas, the son of Eleazar. Um, apparently, you know, they're all getting ready to go to war, and Phineas raises his hand. He said, hey, I got an idea. Before we chop off their heads, why don't we just go ask them what's the deal with this, uh, with this altar? And so they send Phineas and a group of guys, and Phineas travels all the way from Canaan, across the Jordan, all the way to the land of these eastern tribes, and when he gets there, he says, why did you guys build this altar to a foreign god? Why did you do that? And the eastern tribe said, this isn't an altar to a foreign god. We love Yahweh. We would never, ever turn from Yahweh. This isn't even a real altar. It's just a replica. It looks like an altar. We're not even going to sacrifice there. We just we, we built this, this monument because we, we knew that you guys would tell our grandchildren that we're not allowed to go to Israel to worship at the tabernacle. That's why we made this, to show them that they are part of Israel. And, and, and Phineas said, Tell your grandchildren you're not part of Israel. We would never do that. We love you guys. You're our brothers. You're our sisters. And so, you know, they, you know, they joined hands. They sang Kumbaya. They, they, just, they just worked it all out, all right? But they worked it out. The whole problem was resolved when this one priest lovingly decided to make the trip to where these eastern tribes were, truly to understand. Now, I hope I'm not stretching the narrative too, too far to tell you that, that that guy Phineas, he reminds me of Jesus. All right, let me, let me explain why. Um, in the person of God the Son, God himself traveled a long way to enter fully into the human experience and really understand us. When, when God the Son, the second person of the eternal trinity, when he took on human flesh, it was like he was, it's kind of like Phineas, he was coming here just to say, I want to understand you guys. I want to know you. Now, let's say, um, let's say you don't really understand the people of France, all right? French people don't make any sense to you. My, my apologies, Sebastian, all right? You, you, you just don't understand French people, all right? You love them. You want to love them even better, but, but you don't understand them, so you want to understand them. What would you do? Well, you might read a book about France. That would probably help. Even better, you might say, I'm going to take a vacation, 10 days in Paris. That would probably help even more. But what if you said, no, I really want to love these people, and you say, I'm going to move to France, and I'm going to live there for 30 years, and you do that. Not only, at the end of 30 years, not only would you, not only would you understand the, the French people, you'd actually start to become a little bit French yourself, right? You would learn the language fluently. You'd learn to cook French cooking. You'd, you'd, you'd have a heart. You'd have a French heart. You'd cheer. You'd, you'd like soccer better than football. I mean, you would become, you'd become one of them. But you'd have to really love them to want to do that. That's what our high priest Jesus did. For it, John, John 1 verse 14 says, the word, and it's talking about the eternal, infinite, second person of the Trinity, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He moved to where we are and he became one of us. He was, there was that, that loving passion 
that desire to understand. And in order to do that, he, well, Hebrews 2 verse 17 says, in order fully to understand us, it says, he had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Hebrews chapter 4 says that we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He went through everything we go through. And it says, therefore, we can approach the throne of God's grace with confidence. Knowing that when we go to the throne of God's grace, we find someone there who understands. And we will find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So that's why I said Jesus, or Phineas, reminds me of Jesus. Jesus is kind of our Phineas. However, I should say this, there, there's, one big, there's one big difference between Phineas and Jesus. There's a lot of differences, but there's one that stands out. All right, When, when Phineas traveled to the eastern tribes, when this priest traveled all the way across Jordan to the east to understand these people, he discovered that they weren't as bad as everyone said. In fact, he found out they weren't even bad at all. They were not idolaters. But when our priest traveled from a distant place to where we are, it turned out we were far worse than anyone dreamed. In fact, we were so bad that when, this, when our priest came to us, we killed him. Imagine how the story would have been different if, if Phineas would have traveled from Canaan to the eastern tribes and, they, and, and he gets there and, and, and eastern tribes just say, oh, he's one of those westerners. Kill him. You know, can you imagine that? I mean, the, the western tribes, would have, they would have moved in and they would have wiped out all those three tribes of the east. They would have been gone, right? That's what we did to Jesus. Out of love, wanting to know us, become one of us, he came to where we are and we took him. You know the story. We beat him up. We nailed him to a cross. When he was dead, we threw him in a grave. We put a big stone in front of it. And at Eastertide, we remember, three days later, he rose again. And what's so surprising is not just the fact that he rose again, but what he did after he rose. I mean, you would expect the Son of God becomes a human comes to this world, we kill him. Three days later, he's going to step out and say, you know what, I'm going to wipe out all of you. You're all dead. But three days later, he comes out of that tomb. He stands before us, our messed up, broken race. He spreads his hands with the nail scars, and he says, I still love you. I still love you. Anyone comes to me, I will give them life. So this is the way our God has loved us. Isn't he something? I mean, he loved us so much, even though we're all screwed up. He said, you know what? I want to come and understand them. He comes in the person of his, his son, Jesus, and, 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 and he loves us so much that even no matter how much we've messed up, when we come to Jesus and trust in him, God says, you know what? From here on out and for the rest of eternity, when I look at you, I see you in the best light. When I look at you, I see Jesus now. He's really loved us well. So, I wonder if you agree with this. It seems to me um, if God has loved us that well, don't you think we should ask him through the Holy Spirit to teach us 
to love each other the same way. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for our, how we fall so far short of loving. Forgive me. Forgive all of us. We don't really try to understand. We don't really listen well to people. We assume things about them. Thank you that you haven't done that for us. May your love and your forgiveness in Christ transform us. Holy Spirit, shed abroad the love of God in our hearts that we might love well. In Christ's name, amen.